This is Dana Thomas, and you're listening to The Green Dream, a podcast about how to green up your life by Wondercast Studio. Climate change is bearing down on us like a mighty hurricane, and it's scary as hell, but it doesn't have to be. I'm Dana Thomas, a leading voice in the sustainable fashion movement. On The Green Dream, I welcome global experts, creators, and change makers from politics, business, and the arts for dynamic conversations on how you can green up your life. The Green Dream is the podcast of hope. This episode is sponsored by Another Tomorrow, a women's fashion brand that redefines luxury with a commitment to ethics, sustainability, and transparency from farm to fabric to atelier. Find Another Tomorrow on its website, anothertomorrow.co, at its flagship boutique, 384 Bleecker Street in New York City, and at select stores. It's Oscars week next week, and to celebrate cinema's top awards ceremony, we've decided to have a glamorous movie episode here on The Green Dream. Our first guest is Shanok Sen, the award-winning director of All That Breathes, a poetic documentary about two middle-aged brothers, Muhammad and Nadim, and their young assistant Salik in New Delhi, India. The three men rescue and rehabilitate injured birds. The film has already won Best Documentary Awards at both the Sundance and Cannes Film Festivals, a first in cinema, and it has been nominated for the Academy Award for Best Feature Documentary. Sen, who also hails from Delhi, follows the brothers as they collect and tend to injured birds in their basement clinic, Wildlife Rescue. Most of their patients are black kites, a carnivorous scavenger that Hindu veterinarians, who are vegetarian, refuse to treat. The brothers, who are Muslim, have no such qualms. A few feet away is a soap dispenser workshop, their day job that not only covers family expenses, but also medical equipment, bandages, medicine, and 500 pounds of meat each month to feed the recuperating raptors. In the two decades since the brothers started their rescue campaign, they have saved more than 20,000 birds. All That Breathes is not a conventional wildlife film, nor is it a conventional documentary. There are no talking heads, no narration recounting all the issues the creatures are facing, no lecturing. Instead, Sen quietly follows the three men through their everyday lives in Delhi, where the air pollution is so dense and toxic, the brothers believe birds suffocate and fall to the earth, and where violent sectarian uprisings threaten their own welfare. Delhi is a gaping wound, Mohammed says, and we're just a band-aid on it. The New York Times calls All That Breathes a hopeful story of patience and persistence in the face of obstacles. NPR film critic John Powers said, All That Breathes celebrates good things it's easy to forget, the wonder of life, the virtues of compassion, and the human capacity to make the world better. All things we try to honor on The Green Dream. All That Breathes is currently available on HBO and HBO Max. Also on The Green Dream today is Time Magazine film critic Stephanie Saharic, who will tell us about other touching and beautiful environment-themed films in theaters or streaming right now. One of them, EO, by Polish director Jerzy Skolomowski, has been nominated for the Academy Award for Best International Film. But first, Shanak Sen to talk about All That Breathes. Shanak Sen, welcome to The Green Dream. Tell us, how did the film come to be? Well, the thing is that when you live in Delhi, you're always sort of preoccupied with the air. The 
all pervasive grayness sort of laminates your life and you're constantly in some way or the other thinking about this almost creepily sentient gray opaque tactile air that's coating your life i was also philosophically interested in human non-human relationships so i wanted to do something vaguely on the texture of life in delhi the kind of gray tone of life in delhi by using birds as a kind of vector and if i had to pinpoint one moment i would say that this one time when i was sat in my car in new delhi and every time you look up the sky is full of this kind of a monochromatic expanse right with these lazy black dots gliding in the sky which are the black kites and one of them sort of plummeted like stooped and i had the distinct impression of thinking of a bird that's fallen off the sky you know i was gripped by this figure of what happens when a bird falls off the sky when you google that singular and brilliant work of the two brothers nadeem and saud comes up who've saved over 25000 black kites in the last 15 years most of all i did not want to make a sweet film about nice people doing good things i did not want to make a maudlin sentimental film nor did was i at all interested in making a kind of nature or wildlife talk conventionally speaking so once i visited there and i saw how they work they work out of this tiny grubby claustrophobic basement the fact that they're all like philosophers in their own right and i realized that there was enough depth and that's when the film began and when did you start shooting it we began in 2019 the beginning of 2019 shot till the end of 22 so we took 3 years. years but part of that was during covid so you had to stop at yes. some points yes yes and then carry on again yes you have really magical moments in it that seem like you had to have waited a long time to get them though clearly you spent a long time filming how many hours did you film for your 90 minute movie well i think our uh, footage was over 300 hours so we had a whole mountain like garage full full of hard drives that we had and yes i mean a lot of it is a function of time life rewards you with accidents and contingencies as you go on shooting because none of us were really experienced in wildlife docs nor was that ever the ambition so the only thing we could do was to try and take as long as we could and have the luxury of time so the value of making a kind of indie film is to really work in your own pace and set your own rhythms really now how did you go about convincing the brothers and cousin right their assistants their cousin so mohammed nadim and cousin salik how did you convince them of allowing you to film them and to really sort of enter their lives because you were part of their lives in their house when they were eating and when they were playing with their kids and everything actually convincing them was not the hard part because i just put all my cards on the table and said this is what i'm interested in i don't know anything beyond what i vaguely have a sense of right now above and beyond that the main thing was that they were very used to giving bite sized interviews like talking head interviews you know and that was the form that we had to break them out of because the main ambition of this kind of a creative non fiction is that you want the quality of the quotidian of the banal of everydayness and a kind of humdrumness and that where characters are unselfconsciously being instead of behaving in front of the camera is not an easy quality but there the main strengths you have in your toolkit is boredom you have to wait for characters to get bored essentially you have to wait for the critical mass of boredom plus awareness and once you get the first yawn that's what you need you're waiting for the first yawn essentially i think what happens is that the first month is absolute trash in terms of footage 
but it's a required rites of passage. Right. It's a bit like when we're making crepes in France and the first crepe always goes in the bin because it's terrible. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> sure. That's exactly it. And so you need to get people to get used to you and where you and the camera are not obtrusive presences. So that takes a while. That takes a while. And the movie's very poetic. It's very peaceful and calm and meditative. Where does this tone come from? Is this what you set out to do or did it just sort of emerge that that's how it was in the chaos that is Delhi? I mean, it's a cacophony of noise and activity and everything happening all at once. You know, I love some of the scenes with the motorcycles of entire families on them riding behind this very steady scene of calmness. How did you find that poetic? For one, yes, it is a density, but I think it's more cacophony to outsiders and to Westerners. It's my home. So I don't think of it as cacophony at all. But it's active, to be sure. It's not quiet like the Grand Canyon. There's a lot going on. Oh yes, all the it's time. very dense. It's very at times it can feel discombobulating, of course. Life is very intermeshed, hundred percent. In terms of the tone, I realized that this couldn't be a regular observational doc. I couldn't go handheld because that often feels a bit anxious and restless. And the material that I was encountering required the film to be meditative and contemplative. And the characters were like philosophers and they were talking about ethereal ideas as such the form had to find a kind of cinematic or poetic lyrical grammar which is why we figured out this slow languid languorous style of uncut pants and tilts and so on and also this kind of a lyrical voiceover style because the film had to make you think it had to make you contemplate and it therefore couldn't be a, like a quick hollywoodized montage of things no. right when you begin the film with four minutes of just rats what you're doing is that you're setting a spectatorial contract with the audience to say, sit and watch and your patience will be rewarded, right? And they realize that there's pleasure in watching itself and it tweaks the expectations in terms of time and, you know, temporality at large. And I love that you don't just focus on the birds, though the birds are so majestic and so beautiful. But there's horses and pigs and lizards and dogs and frogs, all sorts of wildlife in the film, did you think of yourself as an environmentalist or an animal lover before you set out to do this? Or is it just what happened because you were making a movie about these fellows saving birds? Absolutely not. I had never thought of myself as any serious birder, only amateurish, I suppose. No, not as an animal because I've seen how passionately a lot of animal people are. And I regret to say that before the film, I never shared that kind of a passion. But now, of course, I'm enrolled into it hook, line and sinker. <laughs> feel very passionately about it. The film had to zoom out from being just about the birds and the brothers. It had to be about urban ecology. It had to be about human non-human entanglement and our kind of neighborliness or kinship with non-human life. And therefore, we had to show life writ large on the canvas of the city. And therefore, the whole panoply of animals that you see in the film to understand that the city is also as much a space of non-human improvisation and survival and successful careers in thriving. At the same time, there's serious political unrest with violent uprisings in the streets. Now, did you already know that this was coming when you set out to start making the movie? Or was this part of the, the accidents that you say were happening as you were filming over three years? It was utterly a part of the accidents that were happening when we were filming. Because when we began, the film was meant to be purely ecological or philosophical. However, the city of Delhi was going through such a tumultuous time, right? But I, I couldn't risk, like, you know, like 
pointing the camera streetwards because I had to respect the integrity of what I was shooting. And in that, what happened was that I realized that the outside world would often leak in. You know, I would often find ways to show resonances from the outside world come in. You know, a character goes to the balcony and you hear the distant murmurs of a protesting crowd. Or you hear videos of what sound to be like violence, but you don't see them. So the political is sensed as a kind of pregnant background, but it's always oblique and tangential and never really front and center. And I like it that way now. I like it when you sense the social instead of being pedantically told what it is. Exactly. And you also, as you said before, you wanted to work in this animal-human relationship. And this was a almost like a seamless way of sewing these two things together. And the idea that, you know, there's all this going on while birds are literally falling from the sky and everyone's so obsessed with what's going on in their microcosm. They're not looking at the macro of the impact of all this environmental pollution, the air, on their entire sphere of where they live. I love how you've juxtaposed the micro and the macro. And the people don't necessarily see the macro because they're so obsessed with the micro. You know, there's an idea that philosopher Timothy Morton has, which he calls hyperobjects, which in short, there's certain phenomena in the world which are so expansive that it's difficult for our brains to fully comprehend. This could be something like climate change or the Anthropocene or the internet. Things that are big and we only are able to process it cognitively through smaller nodes. And the thing is that why the documentary form is interesting because it always waxes and wanes between the particular and the whole. And Mm -hmm. I like it when you zoom in to zoom out. Intimacy is the way to talk about universals. And to tell a truly universal story, you have to also as much home in on something which is very irreducibly particular and specific. And one shouldn't shy away from that. So you're constantly waxing and waning between the extremely intimate and the extremely universal. And that is the only way one gets into the... When one looks at the universal through the universal, very often it ends up being unemotive. Now tell us about the first public screening. Where was it? Was it at Sundance? Virtually, because it was a pandemic year. Right. Unfortunately, we didn't have a physical premiere. So when was the first public one where you had like people in the theater? First physical premiere was at Cannes, which was very exciting because three brothers, Reem Saud and nice. Salik had come. It was really, really memorable. We got a standing ovation. It was genuinely lovely. And you've received all sorts of awards, including the Sundance Documentary Award, the Cannes Film Festival Award. And you're now nominated for an Academy Award. Did Mm -hmm. you know when you were filming and you were editing that you had a real gem, that it was coming together in such a beautiful way? Like, did you feel really good about it? Well, the thing is that, you know, these are not the terms through which you engage with the work, right? The work is like a fever dream. You've jumped off a cliff and you're in free fall. And of course, you think you have something special or something original to say, which is why you put in that kind of work. So those things are always self-perpetuating in terms of why else would you put in time if you didn't think that you had something new to say. I can't imagine that somebody thinks in terms of this award, this award, this award. You just want to capture cinematic magic. And after that, the world is a kind of pleasant unknown. And you hope that some festival will stick. But no, not in my wildest dreams had I ever thought of the Oscars, no. That's fantastic. So do you have your tuxedo already? Immediately after the press for the day gets done, I'm going to get fittings. I'm going to go to a shop and decide. I I 
always try and push these things till it reaches a critical mass of urgency and it can't be deferred any further and i've been told that today is really the last day i can push it <laughs> exactly and you've been to several award shows haven't you you've all sorts of things going on no yeah it's a course i mean you know the award circuit is a kind of pleasant glitzy hamster wheel of many things over and over again and it's enjoyable and it's all of that like yes i have This episode is sponsored by Another Tomorrow, a women's fashion brand that redefines luxury with a commitment to ethics, sustainability, and transparency, from farm to fabric to atelier. Find Another Tomorrow on its website, anothertomorrow.co, at its flagship boutique, 384 Bleecker Street in New York City, and at select stores. If you're enjoying this podcast, check out our interview with Eva Orner, director of Burning a documentary about the epic wildfires across Australia in 2019 and 2020. You can find that episode and many others in our archives wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to know more about positivity and hope in the climate movement, sign up for the Green Dream newsletter at our website, thegreendream.studio. Now back to my chat with Shanak Sen, director of the documentary All That Breathes. It's now available on HBO and HBO Max. So, how did you get into filmmaking because your background is actually more academic than cinematic, isn't it? You did fellowships including one at Cambridge, you published scholarly papers. What was the focus of your research when you were doing those fellowships? Well, my PhD was at the intersection of philosophy and media, but I was doing both things simultaneously always. I also went to film school. And after film school I began my PhD and while doing the PhD I had made my first films. It wasn't like one or the other it was both sort of led a bit of a bipolar life running simultaneously exactly yeah so it's like you're using two different parts of your brain which sometimes cross pollinate and make things richer and sometimes they pull at opposite ends those two things were always simultaneous so they're as much a salient part of my personality that I love that and your first film was called cities of sleep and it's about how the homeless in delhi were trying to find places to sleep and how this was always being disrupted and how they were being treated how did that film come about how did you come up with the idea and set to it well i always struggled with my own sleep and then i wanted to think of ways in which one can think of sleep also can be political and social and urgent Absolutely. and how it reconfigures how we think of the political and how the city sort of disaggregates itself differently when seen through the lens of sleep mm. through the horizontal axis that's how it started and how was it received it was a very very shoestring budget film which i shot and edited colored and did sound for pretty much on my own so it was almost like non funded so for that it punched above its weight but nothing close to the caliber of the top tier festivals that this film has had fortunately did cities of sleep have any impact on how the homeless were treated in delhi afterwards did you have any sort of social impact with the film yeah there's a bunch of things so for instance we screened the film for different target groups like lawyers who were working on the homeless act for different kinds of social activists urban researchers etc there are many small social interventions for instance one solar power enterprise in bangalore saw the film and decided to help one of the sleep community by installing solar generators so which meant that especially in the winters when it gets really cold and there's a resistance to washing and bathing because the water is too cold for the homeless right. and of course they therefore develop ailments 
and mm-hmm. just a small intervention like hot water from a solar powered device changes things so they went and installed it that sort of a thing i think uh, those micro actions micro gestures go a long way in inaugurating actual material changes that's what happened there so these kinds of smaller changes were quite nice which i think would have helped alleviate some things for some people but one shouldn't ever simplistically overstate what a film can do in this film you show how media attention to the bird rescue project brought the brothers and their cousin good fortune and i don't want to tell more about it cuz i don't want to give it away and this good fortune allowed them to do more has the film helped as well have they had more of a lift on their project or people reaching out and helping them are they getting more foundation money or support so it's been good in multiple ways whether it's good enough or not uh, the jury is still out of course all of them have been traveling constantly with the film all of them went to can nadeem has gone to almost as many film festivals as i have he wow. uh, you know he went to krakow went to australia came to new york twice they went to baftas in london and all three of them are coming for the oscars so uh, you know it's all exciting in terms of the travel Well, who's looking after uh, the birds while they're gone? Saud usually sticks back, unless it's a special place like Cannes or maybe for the Oscars, in which case they'll have to figure out temporary help. They flip a coin. <laughs> uh, I think it's mainly Saud because he's the one who takes care of the birds, and Nadim is more outwardly facing. And he's uh, the older brother, right? He's the big brother. Yes, and apart from that, you know, there's a lot of media attention on their work, and since it's come on HBO, I think. some donations have been trickling in but more importantly our producers have very kindly funded the bird hospital for a year to come which is That's nice great. at the same time i don't know if the money is enough you know their lives are not easy they lead difficult lives and one only hopes that when people see the film on hbo now that it's available that people are more readily donate what they do is truly singular and brilliant and remarkable and exceptional so while i think that the film has provided a kind of oasis or some kind of alleviation of their uh, materially but it remains to be seen how much changes in the long run that is because you don't want to be simplistically a film can't in one fell swoop change everything for a family so one hopes that appreciation continues but i don't know what the future holds and what can listeners do to support them is there a place where they can donate is there a place on a website somewhere Yes, if you just Google Wildlife Rescue Delhi, their work comes up. I mean, I would urge listeners to first watch the film and then make up their mind. I imagine that the film and their story is powerful enough for people to feel swayed to help and contribute. But if you don't watch the film, which is available on HBO right now and HBO Max online, then the way to contribute really is that you just Google Wildlife Rescue Delhi. There's a link to contribute, and it's fairly straightforward and easy. What do you hope viewers will take away from the film when they watch it? I hope that the brothers' general perspective of on non-human human entanglement and the grace with which they approach and view life without any hierarchies, without drawing any distinction between all that breeds. I think that is a kind of interesting position. But beyond that. you know like any good film i don't think that this film should also have a single point agenda all my favorite works of art or no. films are dense objects where you know there are provocations and they open up questions and it shouldn't be like a single one point message and it, there's no utilitarian takeaway or a message but i think the brothers way of being itself is the message Do you have any film heroes or documentary films that inspired you or moved you? For this film, cinematographically, it was people like Viktor Kosakovsky and so on. In terms of the edit, it was a filmmaker called Gianfranco Rossi. Basically, a legacy of documentary films that are not about information but about kind of cinematic 
engagement with a poetic relationship with world generally i like filmmakers like tarkovsky michael haneke i like claire denis i like wong kar wai so those we kinds of wong kar wai he's working on something but who knows if it'll ever get finished yes yes i ran into a friend of his in berlin they told me that he's working on something but it doesn't get finished until he's told it has to be finished <laughs> right right <laughs> that's okay so, when it's somebody like him you let him take their time exactly so what's next what's your next project have you started filming anything or laying something out or you have a new deal i imagine you are in much demand now while i might be i'm also in saddled with awards work and the campaign work and i'm a slow thinker and it takes me time to you know really marinate so i have some ideas but i so i don't have any clear answer to give i might do fiction next ah, uh, but i don't know what it will be about or what i need to unplug after this and just write it out in the next 2 3 months absolutely one of my favorite things to read about during the oscar run up is the oscars luncheon did you go it was the maddest room i've ever been in you know like to be in close proximity with the likes of tom cruise or steven spielberg or all of that was just insane and i was like the childhood cinephile in you comes alive and i did and it was really amazing and it was a small intimate gathering and you could actually have conversations with people so it was lovely what was your sort of moment were you tongue tied did you lose your words or get a little i think in fanboy spielberg i got a bit inarticulate my nicest moment was uh, you know like <laughs> talking to somebody like colin farrell who said that he saw the film just the night before so that was really lovely Yeah, those nice. kind of Thank you so much for being on the Green Dream. That movie is just incredibly beautiful. I I feel like it lowered my pulse. I'm glad to hear it, that. It it calms you down and it brings you into beauty, which is so important in this life. We need to appreciate and meditate and and see beauty for what it is and the beauty of nature. Thank it you. might have taken 300 hours worth of film, but you do it effortlessly. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Now on to more movie fun for this Oscars edition of The Green Dream. There are more and more movies that have a climate theme, either directly, like last year's Don't Look Up by Adam McKay, or indirectly, like Avatar: The Shape of Water. And of course, there are loads of documentaries looking at the climate impact, such as All That Breathes or the award-winning Burning by our second Green Dream guest, director Eva Orner, about the Australian wildfires a few years ago. Or Fashion Reimagined. Becky Hutner's film about how another green dream guest, British fashion designer Amy Pounty, remade Mother of Pearl, the fashion company she heads, into a sustainable brand. Fashion Reimagined is now in UK cinemas, and it will start streaming on Now in Great Britain on April 9th. You can find both the Eva Orner and the Amy Pounty episodes in our archive. Today we are honored to have Time Magazine's film critic Stephanie Saharic to talk about new movies that have a climate theme. I have a special love for Time Magazine. It's where I began my journalism career a very long time ago, as an intern in the Washington Bureau, back when Ronald Reagan was still president. I met Stephanie at the Venice Film Festival last year at breakfast at our hotel, and immediately thought, "She's great. I'm thrilled she's here with us today." Stephanie Saharic, welcome to the Green Dream. So, first of all, climate is definitely becoming a regular theme in film, either overtly or covertly, isn't it? I think these ideas are seeping in. Sometimes maybe not as the main theme of a film, but I think what we're seeing is that people who have the energy and drive to get a film made are 
often thoughtful, aware people. And I think the climate crisis is really at the forefront of what thinking people are concerned about. I think we're seeing more of it, and I think we'll probably see more as, as the years go by. But this isn't a trend like the 1970s disaster movies where, you know, they were just a period of time where these it was a trend in filmmaking. This feels something deeper and more part of the conversation. Could it be generational? Do you think that young film executives understand that climate is real and they're green lighting and funding these films? It could be generational. And I certainly hope so, because obviously the younger generation is going to be most affected by what's happening with the climate. I, I think one thing that I do hope is that, I, I mean, film production is waste in its very nature. Uh, you just need a lot of right. resources to make a film. And I know like uh, costume designers who work on films and they're ordering like uh, bolts and bolts of extra fabric and like clothes that they never use. And, you know, some of them get returned, but I don't know what happens to the rest of them. So I think like even on that level, you see an enormous amount of waste. And I really, I think and hope that going forward, people will start to become more conscious. I hope so, too. So what are some of your favorite climate-themed movies right now? There's one that's an Australian movie you mentioned. Yes, there's a very sweet, beautifully filmed picture called Blueback, which played at Sundance and Toronto Film Festival. And Mia Wasikowska is the big star, and she plays an Australian marine biologist. She grew up on the west coast of Australia, and the film is, the story is told largely in flashback, and the actress who plays the young Mia Wasikowska is Ilsa Fogg, and her mother is played by Rada Mitchell, and she is an environmental activist, and she's raising her daughter to care about the natural world and this beautiful coastal area where they live. And um, the mother is kind of annoying, but also really awesome. And she gets the job done and drives her daughter crazy. But obviously, they reach an accord, which is kind of what the movie is about. And there's some very beautiful underwater scenes, aren't there? I saw, I was watching some of the, the trailer and it seemed there was some diving and just gorgeous sea life. There's a lot of diving and sea life. It's it's very beautiful to look at. And the blue back of the title is a wild blue groper. That grouper. This young character. It's actually groper. G-R-O-P-E-R, which I had never, I didn't really know exactly what this fish was. So I had to Google. But apparently. Oh, they're beautiful. And they're, they get to be very old. They're big. Large, like they're prehistoric. Yes, yeah. And so that is also part of the film that this fish that she befriends when she's first diving with her mother as a child also carries on into her adult story. And and I think that the groper is, I think he's a puppet. I don't, they may have had, I'm sure they had some real footage of a, a groper, but there's a little bit of fantasy there, but it's very realistic looking and beautiful. And it's just a very sweet story. And then there's EO by Polish director Jerzy Skolomowski, which debuted at Cannes and has been nominated for Best International Feature Film. Tell us about that one and what its message is. EO is one of my favorite films of last year, and it's basically about a donkey who journeys. He's a circus donkey, um, and then the circus breaks up, and he just travels on foot through Europe, and he meets people who treat him really kindly, and then some people who 
are are less kind. And in some places, it's kind of a difficult film to watch, but it's very beautifully filmed. There's a scene set in the forest where you have all these animals doing their nighttime stuff that's really sort of hip- hypnotic and and maybe I would say kind of brutally beautiful, but it's it's really quite something. And I think I can't I don't want to give away the ending of the film, but at its heart, it is, among other things, I think, a plea for vegetarianism because who wants to eat EO? Um, and no, and it's one so, wants to eat EO. no one wants to eat EO. EO is l- lovely. And and actually that's why Skolomowski chose a donkey for this story. I mean, the, it is somewhat influenced by Brasson's O Hazard Balthazar, but it's not a remake and it's not, it's different. It, it's its own creature. But Skolomowski has said that he actually chose the donkey to be his protagonist because a donkey has enormous soulful eyes that kind of see everything and, and reflect the world back at us in addition to really alert ears and so EO kind of becomes our eyes and ears and the things that happen to him. You know, we feel them really deeply. So um, it, it's really, it's, it's an incredible film. It's, it's a little hard to watch sometimes. I sent some people to see it and they're like, oh my God, I was devastated. I'm like, well, it's, it's, I think it's a great movie experience. And then, of course, you're a fan of All That Breathes by our guest today, Indian director Shaunak Sen. What for you makes this movie so special? Oh, I love All That Breathes. I think, I mean, just to see those brothers who, they live in New Delhi and they live rather modestly and they give everything that they have, their time, their energy. Um, they, you know, they raise all this money to save these birds because birds, as we know, birds in the air, like fish in the sea, they're barometers of all of the things, many of the terrible things that are happening in our environment. And the affection that these brothers have for these, I, I love birds, but I just find them so weird. Like they freak me out a little bit because they are kind of prehistoric. And to see mm. the love and the tenderness that these brothers lavish on these birds. I find just incredibly moving. And also, it is a really, really beautiful-looking documentary. I mean, I saw it months ago, and I'm still kind of thinking about those. You know, I can just picture those sort of velvety, soft, gray tones, and it's it's really lovely all around. And I think it's, you know, it's also an important documentary because, you know, I mean, sometimes we have, like, climate-related documentaries, and they're little, they're clearly works of advocacy, which is important in some ways, but this also just works as a story about people and their relationship with nature that I think is really incredible. It is. Well, thank you so much, Stephanie, for joining us on the Oscars edition of The Green Dream. My pleasure. We look forward to having you on to talk about movies, which is one of our favorite pastimes, and I imagine it's one of yours, too. I will come back. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to The Green Dream with Shaunak Sen, the award-winning director of the Oscar-nominated documentary, All That Breathes, currently available on HBO and HBO Max. Join us in two weeks for our next episode, with Ukrainian fashion designers Ksenia Schneider and Ivan Froloff, a year after we first spoke with them to see how they're faring as their homeland remains under siege. We hope you'll join us. 
This episode is sponsored by Another Tomorrow, a women's fashion brand that redefines luxury with a commitment to ethics, sustainability, and transparency from farm to fabric to atelier. Find Another Tomorrow on its website, anothertomorrow.co, at its flagship boutique, 384 Bleecker Street in New York City, and at select stores. The Green Dream was written by Dana Thomas. From Talkbox Productions with executive producer Tavia Gilbert and mix and master by Kayla Elrod. Music performed by Eric Brace of Red Beat Records in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm Dana Thomas, the European Sustainability Editor for British Vogue. You can follow me on Instagram and on Twitter, where my handle for both is at Dana Thomas Paris. And you can sign up for the Green Dream newsletter at our website, thegreendream.studio. Thank you for listening. <laughs>